This is Guerrilla Project Management with Samad Aidan. We bring you engaging and thought-provoking conversations with today's leading project management experts and emerging influencers. Todd, welcome again. Samad, it's great being back talking to you. It's been a while since we've seen each other and a while since we talked, so this is wonderful. Well, thank you for being here. Tell me, what are some of the purchasing trends that you are seeing in the industry right now for purchasing project management services? So there's been a drift over the years in some of this. So I think if we just talk about right now, it's smaller, concise products. Uh, I think people are testing the water. But to understand that, so you kind of figure out where things might go in the future, let's look at just a touch of the history. So if we go back to maybe 2006 and seven, in many areas of the country, there was a, a almost a negative unemployment rate in the project management world. So people were doing whatever they could, and they were buying T&M services, and let's just get somebody in here and get things moving. And, and so there was really a fair amount of gobble it up type attitude. And then we got into the the roaring 2009, which uh, nobody bought anything, just stopped. And as people came out of that in the 11-ish, 10-ish, 11-ish era, then what we saw were purchasing around things that were bleeding very badly. So it was it was taking a look at what do I need to fix right now? And not too much beyond that, but they knew that they had some very specific things that they were trying to get done and trying to solve to stop the bleeding. So we saw a lot of purchasing come around where people were buying uh, T&M, very, very specific type things. Let's go fix this. I need somebody specialized to just hone in on this thing and fix it. Now we're seeing a little bit of that open up just a little bit, and people are starting to probe around and saying, okay, now we've got some of these things fixed. I've got a little bit more money, so let's invest a little bit more proactively, and let's look at how not to fix a project, but how to prevent that failure, which was kind of luxury money in the past. So we're seeing more proactive purchases going on as people are testing what's going on. They're smaller, surprisingly. They're looking at how much how much can I, I want to go test, I want to get my toe in the water and see if this is going to help me out, and how little can I spend to get some big impact that's going on. My guess is this is going to continue for a while, but if the economy continues to get better, then what you're going to see is people are going to start opening that up a little bit wider and saying, hey, I want to start looking at a bigger initiative to kind of come into my organization and make things run better. If the economy gets worse, I think it'll shut right off and we'll be back into the, okay, how do I stop the bleeding? I just want to do what's absolutely necessary to get things moving forward. Um, which way it's going, uh, you know, if I knew the answer to that one, um, I wouldn't have this job. I'd have some other <laughs> economic <laughs> forecasting job and be paying, you know, billions of bucks for it. But um, that's, you know, which way it's going, can't tell you. But that's where we're at, and that's kind of the two roads I think we're we're headed down at this point. So, what are the ways that people are purchasing um, these types of project management services? Well, they do want something that's predictable, and I think that is probably one of the big items we're seeing. They want predictability, they want proactivity. 
Okay, this reactionary thing, I think they're tired of that. I think we're into a little bit of reactionary fatigue, <laughs> if you can mm -hmm. call it that, where people are tired of fighting fires and they want to see something happen. However, they're still uh, understaffed. So everybody's working at you know 90 hours a week and trying to put another couple hours in there. It's just a little bit difficult. So I think that... Um, what we're seeing is, is just that step in there of trying to get things uh, a little more proactive, a little more, let's, let's knock this one out so I don't have to deal with it again. Um, but it's toe in the water. They want to be small purchases. They, they want to test this, test that. They don't want to go and make that big commitment at this point. And I'm sure that's a bit through lack of understanding of who's out there supplying what types of services it's probably partly, hey, I need to do this all internally. Uh, and it's probably partly um, just, uh, uh, just the restrictions on their budget. And so you talked about um, time and material type of uh, ways or contracts for buying these types of services. Uh, we know that there is a fixed price option as well. But uh, you have uh, started to offer uh, a third option that I find to be fascinating and I can see how this would be something very interesting to a lot of clients out there. Talk to me about the different options and, and, and what's available out there. Okay. Well, let's just do some basic 101 pricing stuff. Okay. Fixed price. Fixed price is how a lot of larger projects get bid and they say, hey, I want to go out and have somebody give me a price. So, uh, I, you know, somebody like myself or some other project management services company comes in, looks at what you're trying to do, sits down with an Excel spreadsheet and figures out what the actual cost might be, what work they put into it, where they might run into risk, what types of problems they have to get into, and they come up with an overall uh task list that they think it's going to take and how many hours. Now, because of the fact it's fixed price, the risk has been transferred from the person asking for the fixed price project to the person offering the fixed price product. So in general, on a fixed price item, you're seeing transference of risk. Those, therefore, you're paying a premium for that type of effort. On the other end of the spectrum, there's time and materials. Time and materials should be the least expensive option. If you were to sit down at the end and look at how many dollars per hour you spend on a fixed price project, it probably is going to be a lot higher than if you look at the dollar per hour in a T&M contract. However, the person who is letting, who is giving out that T&M project is assuming all the risk. They're in charge of telling people what to do, how to do it, when to do it, what the output's supposed to look like, telling them to go back and do it again, whatever it is. That means that they're now having to spend more time on actually making sure that they got the right set of deliverables. They're also saying they know enough to do that job. And that's critical because if you're stepping into a new arena, and since 2007, for instance, a few things have changed out there in the world, and so a lot of companies are stepping into areas they've never been in before and doing a T&M says, oh, we know how to do this. Where doing a fixed price, what you would be doing is going out and buying some expertise to come in and actually help you with that. 
right? So mm-hmm. you, the, the company who's letting the contract, you, know, you as a project manager, have to balance those things. So if you're a very mature organization, you know what you're doing after, you know what the scope is, you know how to do it, then a T&M makes a lot of sense. You might, if you don't have that confidence, you don't know that, it might be a good idea to go into fixed price and push that risk over onto somebody else. Just make sure it's a really good contract, okay? Mm-hmm. In the middle, there's a thing called list prices. And list prices are, you know, the price of a can of beans in the store has a list price. <laughs> you know what it yeah. is before you walk in the store and you're buying a can of beans, right? And it's going to cost you whatever it costs you. Okay. So that now is something that someone's been able to take. They say, I know how much the can costs. I know what kind of beans to put in. I know how much fluid air is in there. I know how, how to put a label on this thing. I know that at certain times I'm going to have so many damaged cans I need to throw away. I may have a ripped off label that I either need to relabel or once again, throw it away because I don't know what's in the can. Um, I have shelf life that I may need to worry about depending on the product. So there's a whole set of factors that go in to come up with just some sort of general list price. Now, that makes things very predictable because you now know long before you start whatever mission it is, making a casserole or doing a project, that you need to inject that amount of money into the budget to handle that function. Okay, So it's a predictable amount that goes in and you're just buying it. There's all of the upfront negotiation and months worth of work that you do trying to negotiate something out goes away. So all of a sudden you have something that's very, very simple. So you have, you can go out to a website, you can buy a service just like you would buy Microsoft Word and that's what I get, it's done and now let's go use it, okay? Mm -hmm. So from my client's standpoint, I'm not gonna, I, I think it's more important to talk about how some of the rest of the industry is actually working. So when I look at how my clients are actually dealing with their clients, okay, that's kind of the, the, the telltale sign. It's how everyone is kind of working with this concept of service as a product. So let's say that you're deploying an ERP system and you have certain Uh, requests that continually come in from certain sectors. So let's just say a municipality who's buying your ERP system has maybe five or six or ten different things that most of the municipalities of a certain size buy, but another size may not buy it. So a small municipality may not be worried about parking meters, where a large municipality has to worry about parking meters and, and income coming in from parking meters. So the ERP company can sell their base product, and now it's very acceptable to the small municipality, but then they can have a common standard add-on that they put on that interfaces to whoever's park meter software they have to use. And instead of coming in and doing that custom every time, they sell that service of that integration as a product and say, hey, this is what it's going to cost. Now, what that does to their client is their client has to forego some of the overall or uh, customizations that, that they might normally ask for. And so there's a tendency of customers to start to say, hey, you know, let's just take the vanilla package and what do we have to do to change our method of doing things to fit the software? 
And so now they're looking at software and services that get as close as they can to their functionality, and then they're just not going to customize any further than that. And now that makes it so that they can walk up to the board, to their council, whatever it is, that they're, whether it's municipality or, or um, a company, and say, here's what we're buying, here's what the cost is, and here are the risks that are in here, and this is why I think it's going to work, and this is what we have to change. So it becomes very predictable up front of what they're going to do and what the pluses and minuses are. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the, the at the heart of this whole concept of a list price services, a service as a product is people are going out and saying, hey, this makes sense and I can go buy these things and add on. Um, I, I think we're all in the world of where our company is totally different. And I think there's a lot of people who would argue that, um, you know, accounts receivables, account receivable it doesn't need to be custom. Right. <laughs> Right, right, absolutely. And and so let's talk about an example, a specific example that is usually uh, the one aspect of project management that actually creates so, uh, so much headaches for, for customers or for clients, uh, and that is crafting that statement of work. So, so we know that the statement of work is at the heart of any contract you're going to have with a, with a vendor. Uh, let's first start with some of the uh, biggest issues that clients face with vendors, and then we can look at later questions, how the list price uh, service model, how it helps uh, clients get this you know, support and, and help with the SLW that they would usually not be able to get or uh, get only under the two models that you talked about, which is the time and material or fixed price. Okay. So if you, let's think of, let's look at the anatomy of how we actually bring in a, a, a subcontractor to do something. I'm just not just say a single person, although that does happen, the same thing will happen. I'm going to say with a company that was going to come in and provide us some set of general large services. We engage them at some point prior to when we actually need them. We'll call that T minus 90 for 90 days before the project. It may be 180, it may be 360 days, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's there's some length of time before we actually engage them for this project that we start talking to them. And at the time we start talking to them, what does a vendor do? A vendor, um, and I don't care who they are, I'm guilty of this as much as I think everybody else is, regardless of what they say, okay? We come in and we say, what do you need? We listen to all your challenges and what you have, and then we propose solutions to that. And we start saying, hey, I can provide you this and this and this and this. So we've got five or six things that we list out. As we get further toward the actual project, realism starts hitting, and we'll say at T minus 60 days, then all of a sudden we have a budget that we have to worry about and so things start disappearing and we we don't want that and we don't want that we need this trimmed down a little bit here and there and we get closer at t-30 even more stuff falls out and then we start getting purchasing involved and they top you know try to get the price down even further and the minute you drive the price down functionality goes away services go away and so now this what we talked about is continually morphing from something big and grandiose down to something that's more realistic to actually fit the budget in the type of project it is. Unfortunately, 
and Mr. Neuralistic Linguistics, <laughs> Neurolinguistics that you are, <laughs> you understand this. Our brains don't forget about any of that. So we're mm. reading statements of work that we see that says, I'm going to do A, B, and C. And that detail of what goes on to A, B, and C, if it's not completely con listed out in, in excruciating detail, our minds say, oh yeah, and that means, and we translate that to something else that people have told us over time. And I've actually heard people say, well, yeah, I know that's what it says, but this is what they're talking about. And I, okay, then let's get what they're talking about written down in here, right? So things start to drift, and we have this memory of what went on. And it goes through person after person after person. And the, the SOW now changes from what people had said, and we need some way of making sure that what that SOW says relates back to what they're really going to do. And those of us who are in the middle of writing and doing that SOW or any document like that, are the worst people in the world to actually go and edit it. And I'll take mm -hmm. this back. I think you're a writer, so you understand this. I'll take this right back to what we do as writers. If we're writing a blog post or a, a newspaper article or writing a book, we take that document that we just wrote and we give it to an editor and say, read this thing. And they come back and say, oh, this is cool. You're saying this, this, that's not at all what I'm saying right? We get so wrapped up in the words and looking at what things are that we start to lose some of the context of the meaning. So you need somebody from the outside to actually look and say, hey, this isn't making sense or this is, is contradictory to that. So when you're looking at SOWs, the issue is things just start, they, they have to change. That's just the anatomy of this thing. And now how do I, as someone who's been in the middle of the forest, actually see that the tops of the trees have changed color? When uh, I hear uh, th that the SLW is part of the contract, I may think, why not just use a lawyer or my legal department to review uh, the contract? What would be wrong with this approach? Well, you, you kind of mix two terms. So let's make sure we understand contract versus SOW. So a contract is generally what gets me in and out of a project or into a relationship. It's, it's our wedding vows and our divorce decree and how that's going to work, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe some other um, conditions that might surround the overall relationship between the two of us, right? And so mm -hmm. it's a relationship. What's that interface look like? The statement of work is just what the name says. This is the work I'm going to do. And so inside the context of that contract, there's this, here's what I got to do. Now, lawyers are absolutely fantastic at going through contracts. And they need to go through contracts 100%. Lawyers aren't necessarily as good at SOWs as they are at contracts. And the reason for that is lawyers don't necessarily know what a project manager knows. So they don't know the executability, <laughs> the, mm -hmm. the capability to execute that statement of work as a project manager would. And a project manager is much more versed in understanding, wait a minute, this isn't going to work. There's no way they can do that. The numbers are off. They've got that gut feeling of the type of things that can happen and can't happen. So having a lawyer go through the SOW is not a waste of time because they can actually pick up some stuff where it doesn't 
connect correctly with the contract, but they're not the ones who can say, is this executable? Unless they have a significant amount of project management experience. And I haven't seen a lot of lawyers who actually have that experience. They may have some background of, hey, I did an SOW for somebody in the past and this didn't work, but that's not their core competency. What you want to have is you want to have somebody who actually understands execution and has seen hundreds of different SOWs and how they were executed and what types of things fell apart in that execution so you know how to avert those or what types of things were really beneficial in trying to get people to understand what was going on. So, so having that experience of this is what it this is what we wrote in an SOW, and this is how it actually executed and delivered, and here's the flaws and the benefits in each one of these things. That's the real value. And a lawyer, they are great people, but they don't have that expertise. It'd be like somebody like myself actually going through a contract and trying to pretend I understood the legal aspects of a contract. I shouldn't do that. I read contracts all the time but I'm not the best person to tell you what can happen and how it can happen and what the impact of some given clause is inside of a contract. And so is, are these challenges only faced by small companies or is this an issue that faces uh, large uh, companies as well? I don't really see too much of a difference between large and small when it comes to this. I think each one are equally as plagued. The larger company has more resources to take care of it, okay? And it's not that anybody in here is dumb or stupid or, you know, are just, they're, they're not paying attention. It's, we have day jobs, right? We have, yeah. we have... I've got a whole project to run. I may have four or five SOWs sitting in front of me, and I need to spend dedicated time looking at that SOW and then not going by my memory, but going back out and saying, okay, Joe, Sam, Susie, Lucy, what is it that you actually thought we were getting, and does that match with what this SOW says, and how does that work? So a large company has the resources that they could go to another division and have somebody who's a really good project manager in another division, totally unfamiliar with what they're trying to do, review the SOW and ask those questions, okay, and, and do that due diligence to say, okay, is this really hitting my stuff the way I want it to do? A smaller company does not have that capability, right? Um, so they don't, they don't have it, okay? Um, a larger company may have that ability, but um, when was the last time you saw somebody sitting around the company that didn't have something else to do and they just have some right. time to hop over and look at your project and help you out? It just doesn't happen. And so it's very difficult for a larger company, even though they have the resources, to actually implement something to, to make that happen that way. And so when we talked about list price product, as it applies, for example, to the case of an SOW, what if I'm concerned that I'm not going to be in control of the scope of, of, of what's in the product? And, and what if um, my business, at least in my perception, uh, that it's so unique and, and a standard product like a list price product may not work for me? Um, what would I do in this case? Geez, Samad, are you saying that you're a project manager with control issues? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have I control bet issues. Not <laughs> one of your listeners is in that boat, right? I have never seen a project manager that wants to be in control of everything. Um, it's just, I, I just can't understand that. Um, 
that's a hurdle for everybody to get over. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's a mindset issue. And it's the same. I don't care whether you're talking about uh, a service as a product that I'm selling or my fictitious ERP company was selling. It's that same bit. Wait a minute. This can't fit me. I'm special. I'm different. And I want to tell you what's going to happen because this is how it happens here and not someplace else. But let's face it. Really, the types of things you're looking at and trying to understand, it's not whether you understand how the project works. It's whether you can listen to people and understand what they interpreted and what they said or thought they were going to get versus what the SOW says they're going to get. So it is fairly predictable as you go down through an SOW to start looking at, here's the type of people I need to talk to, and here's the type of questions I have to ask, and here's the areas in which we look at. So we look at a, you know, a dozen different areas, uh, maybe a dozen and a half different areas inside the SOW and give a rating of where things are at and what's not right. There's a lot of... Um, I get I get a lot of flack for all the grammatical changes that we make whenever we're actually looking at SOW, but that is critical because we don't just handle executing projects. We've actually handled the whole legal end of things and what happens in litigation, and so we do get a little bit picky on some of the the um, the grammar and how things are described, so we know what we're trying to get. But we're able to go out and we can pretty predictably say, I need to talk for this size of project. I need to talk to X number of people. And from those X number of people, then I can start putting together and giving this, you said this, but I think you really meant this, or you said this, five other people said this. Now it's up to you to decide which one of these is what you're really trying to get, because I can't necessarily tell you from your budget and everything else what it is you're really trying to get. We can point out that these are two very, very non-congruous statements and that from those non-congruous statements, you're going to be in trouble because you're going to have to go mitigate that. You could leave it and not change it, but the project manager better know that when they get to that point, one person's going to think it's one way, somebody else is going to think mm-hmm. it's another way. Yeah, I always say that really the seeds of conflict and even failure of projects get planted right at that stage of the project where you're trying to negotiate uh, that statement of work with the vendor. And um, it's funny, but a typo or uh, one grammatical error um, in the wrong circumstances could actually be interpreted, you know, three, four different ways. And so I totally agree with you. Uh, Talk to me about what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of a service as a product. Well, the advantage is fairly clear cut, and that is that you have a very understood price of what something's going to be, and you're going to know what the scope is, and it's very well defined. You can generally get, uh, you know, examples, sanitized examples, uh, you know, from somebody saying, this is the type of service it is, and this is what it's going to do, and it's going to look just like this whenever it's done. And if you want to go see something that someone else has done, or if you use the same model, then I can go back and get a reference. And that they're, you know, they were pleased with it, these guys are pleased with it, et cetera. So it is very um, constrained and looks uh, consistent from person or organization to organization to organization. The disadvantages, um, one is this concept that people have to get past of, I'm special, I'm different, and this isn't going to fit for me. 
Now, that's true for probably 90 to 95% of the people. There are the 10, 5 or 10% of the people who are very different, and they do have a situation that is significantly different in how they do things, and you have to take some stuff into consideration. That's up to, uh, that really is up to the, to the project manager and the company who is supplying the services to say, uh, okay, this doesn't quite fit. I see what the issue here is. And then you drop out a product and you drop into something that's more custom to make that happen. So there is that some point you have to draw that line and the person who is buying has to understand that the person who is selling is just not trying to upsell. <laughs> they're they're no. saying, hey, wait a minute, we have an issue here. That means that there has to be a little bit more due diligence on the project manager or the hiring person, purchasing whoever, back to that customer saying, or, or a vendor saying, are they actually reputable? Have they got, do they have a track record? Is this consistent in a, you know, what are their, what do their testimonials look like and that sort of thing to make sure that whenever they switch to that custom side that they're they're not upselling. Because I'm sure that there's some people out there who would do that. Uh, I don't think there's a lot. I have a, a fairly optimistic view of people, and so I don't think there's a lot that would do that. But, you know, that's that's a disadvantage. So people get a little bit skittish, a little bit, you know, nervous about it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we're seeing more and more uh, issues with SLW when you see small businesses like um, a dental office or uh, a small uh, business like an architecture firm uh, that are buying technology and when they buy technology they start with the statement of work that the vendor uh, gives them um, and they say okay just sign here and they sign and actually just recently I went to uh, this doctor and um, the lady that was uh, entering the information just uh, was just visibly frustrated. So I asked her and she said that um, she has to use two different systems. The data during the migration or implementation of the new system um, did not come across or was not part of the contract. Training was not part of the contract. Uh, so many aspects of a basic, uh, basic needs of a, a technology implementation were not there. Um, and it's just a clear example of how much of a disadvantage uh, a lot of the small businesses are. And, and this is a way that they can get access to these services without uh, without fearing that, that uh, you know, just that it would be uh, too expensive or it would take a lot of time. Yeah. And to mention, again, it's not just small business. When you are looking at SOW, trying to figure out what's missing, <laughs> it's really yeah. difficult, okay? Yeah. Because it's not there. If it's written wrong, it's actually easier to find than if it's totally missing, right? And if it's totally missing, I don't even know to ask the question. And so having somebody who has that experience and has done hundreds, dozens or hundreds of these things, they have that knowledge they have in many respects like we do we have a process we follow we have a checklist for some of this stuff does it has this does it have this does it have this we have a review process where one person reviews and the next person goes back and and double checks and says okay let me go take a look at this thing and hey did you think about that and you know i i had some experience over here where this might be just a little bit different and, and throw in some other concepts in there
And so that really addresses the the concerns that some clients uh, might have about how this might add cost, it might add time. But a lot of uh, people are concerned about that this is just an additional bureaucracy and it will delay signing uh, the, the, the contract. Um, uh, what would you say to these types of concerns? In, in general, I guess I'd have to ask somebody to come back and uh, show me how when you are going externally, that you're adding bureaucracy because in general, the person on the outside who is doing this is looking at something that is relatively fast and efficient. Okay. If it was being done internally, I can see where the bureaucratic nightmare could happen. Um, Most companies who do this sort of stuff, us included, look at having time uh, next to guaranteed Okay, we're you know we can do an SOW review and we can turn it in about two days, and in that turn of two days, that can be done in parallel with somebody else. It's outside resources, so it doesn't really shouldn't really slow down what goes on internally. If if it takes time to get things sent out and all that, um, it would be a challenge. If people have to have full contracts written up, then that would be a challenge. Most of the companies have standard product type terms and conditions and and they just kind of wrap around so you say hey i want to buy this thing that you buy it just like you would a piece of software and you get one of those license agreement things that you know super fine print and but it fits on a page and you say okay that's what i get and this is the terms around it and so it's not like buying a tnm where you're looking at you know professional services you're truly buying a product and here's what i get and here's the here's the box quote unquote that it comes in um from a cost standpoint uh, I would I would challenge that any of these things uh, are really long run costs, and I'm not just again I'm not talking about just what we're selling here because there's a lot of people out there who sell this type of stuff, and they're looking at it from a standpoint of you know what can I get out there that's cost effective, and that I you know get some sort of a margin off of this thing, okay, but. Since I've done this time and time and time and time again, I can be really effective at it. And I can give you information that you can't get in your own organization because you don't have the breadth of experience. So I would argue that uh, the prices on most of this stuff is so low that if you try to, if you avert one meeting, you, you, you avert <laughs> a one-day slide in the project you're talking about, okay, that pays for it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's like, the, you know, the example that I give, it's like uh, driving without insurance. Yeah, you're saving money on the insurance, but all it takes is one accident where you would actually see the true cost that, that you're actually going to have to pay. And so having uh, talent and skills that have been honed um, over uh, decades uh, on your side is that insurance policy because I guarantee the vendor on their end, they're coming to the table with the big guns. They bring, they have their big sales, you know, big, large experience salespeople. They have lawyers in the back, uh, and that's initial default or uh, template statement of work they're they're providing. That has that has been written specifically to address their needs, not the client's needs. Yeah. Well, let me let me. Uh, not uh, let me challenge that phrase of insurance. Yes, it is insurance, but it's insurance plus because when you have an insurance policy, they wait for the accident to happen before it kicks in. 
right? Right. And we're actually, this is very proactive. So what these type of products do for you is they are an, a bit of insurance saying, hey, I've gone through and I've done my due diligence. But coming out of this, people who review this are saying, here is the statement, here is the concept that you have blocked here, and here are the challenges with this, and here's what you need to do to fix it, right? If they just tell you what the challenges are, don't, don't go near it. But if they tell you here are the challenges and here's how you fix it, then you have an educational event going on there too, correct? Right. And so Absolutely. now you're learning something from this. So you're not just proactively trying to prevent something that's going on, but you're learning from it and you can hopefully carry that knowledge on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And so you may end up, you may end up being someone who is, is just trying to see um, uh, what can go on and be uh, 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 averted, but you really need to think about this as something that's also an educational event, and I'm learning more as I go forward. It's an investment as well. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Todd, I really appreciate your time talking to us about this uh, framework or model for buying and purchasing or acquiring professional services that are critical to every project. Um, will it be possible to uh, uh, for us to add links to examples or templates or anything on your website that can give our audience um, an example of what we're talking about? Yeah, we've got some uh, stuff on our website itself that I can send you a link to to actually uh, show you some of the types of things that we do. Uh, and it's, you know, some of that stuff is IP, so we keep it a little bit closer at best. So if, if people want to know a little bit more, uh, we would ask them to, to uh, you know, sign an NDA or something like that so we can see what goes on. Uh, and they can see what goes on a little bit closer. But uh, yeah, we do have some examples out there that have been fully sanitized so people can look at what goes on. That's wonderful. Well, Todd, as usual, it's a pleasure to talk to you and I look forward to our next conversation. Well, thank you very much, Saman. I appreciate it very much and it's been a joy talking to you. You've been listening to Guerrilla Project Management. You can hear more Guerrilla Project Management podcasts on iTunes and read more at guerrillaprojectmanagement.com.